millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, July 22nd. I'm Kevin Farrell in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... A report from the nonprofit Every Town for Gun Safety examines the economic toll of gun violence in Mississippi. Then a federal agency serving the Mississippi Delta is making a commitment to address the needs of underserved communities in the region. Plus, what do we know about monkeypox? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi leads the nation in gun-related deaths. The personal and emotional toll on those affected by such violence is immeasurable. But gun safety nonprofit Moms Demand Action is highlighting the economic toll of gun violence on communities as part of its multi-pronged effort to enact change. A new study from Every Town for Gun Safety finds that Mississippi has the second-highest economic fallout from gun violence, costing the state a total of nearly $10 billion each year. Taxpayers pay around $307 million of that sum annually. Patricia Ice of Moms Demand Action tells our Kobe Vance, understanding this part of gun violence could be a way to get lawmakers to listen. I live here in the city of Jackson, and I see what is going on every day. And I've heard about the rising numbers of gun violence. The thing is, though, is that people don't think about the economic cost of the gun violence. It's costing our state about $9.9 billion annually. We could instead be using these dollars to invest in the vital local intervention programs and public services that we know prevent gun violence from happening in the first place. This gun violence crisis is costing the country more than $557 billion each year. And, of course, we can't place a dollar value on the lives of the people we're, we're losing. Um, we can't necessarily place a dollar value on the hospitalizations that this is causing. We can't place a value on the cost for families and survivors. But looking at the economic consequences of gun violence, can help us understand just how expensive and how expensive this crisis is. Where do you think these costs come from whenever somebody is affected by gun violence? Well, we have the immediate cost starting at the scene of a shooting, subsequent costs such as long-term physical and mental health care, lost earnings, and criminal justice costs, and then cost estimates of quality of life lost over a victim's lifespan. So it caught, this gun violence costs our nation 
about $557 billion a year. And this includes nearly 35 million taxpayer dollars every day. Even modest reductions in violence could free up massive amounts of taxpayer money that we've currently that we're currently spending on gun violence and its aftermath. Lawmakers in Mississippi have been reluctant to pass any legislation that would um, begin to restrict gun ownership or um, require more strict restrain, strenuous training or background checks before um, accessing a firearm. Do you think that studies like this can help speak more to those lawmakers who are more uh, physically minded? And if so, what what legislation do you think would be effective at being able to help curb gun violence in Mississippi? Mississippi legislators understand money because that is something that they are always talking about. So I think if we could impress upon them how much money that this is costing our state, and if we could break down these immediate costs, starting at the scene of a shooting and subsequent costs, trying to and try to determine the physical and mental health care costs, lost earnings and criminal justice costs and the cost estimates of the quality of life lost over a victim's lifespan. I believe that they might listen a little bit more. They might. I want to step away a little bit from these numbers that are on a spreadsheet and talk more about the people that are affected by gun violence in Mississippi. Again, from the report, around 686 people in Mississippi die by gun violence annually. And that's homicide rates, um, that's suicides, uh, police killings, or unclassified ones. What are your thoughts on how these high numbers affect Mississippians, um, whether it be the people who are directly affected by gun violence, whether they're, so they're injured, or the ones that they that are left behind when a loved one does pass? Well, I think that policymakers should recognize that this is a public health crisis and act accordingly. Um, it really, it, you know, it's it's an epidemic. And so it is a public health crisis. And I think it should be recognized as such. And we're grateful that our federal lawmakers took a historic step forward and passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act into law. This research makes it clear that there is still so much work to do to reduce the cost that our communities bear due to gun violence. So there are, you know, there are really tolls that this gun violence takes against families Uh, Some people have children left behind, and we have to take into consideration that, you know, a a child may lose one parent, may lose both parents, and so it takes an emotional toll. Um, It also takes an emotional toll on the loved ones of the people who are left. And sometimes I think that people think, and not necessarily the legislators, but, you know, they think that if somebody gets shot and killed, that maybe they'll be back later. Um, Sometimes I think that people don't realize that this is not a game, you know, that we are, that we are losing people 
and that people's lives are for forever destroyed. Patricia Ice is with the gun safety nonprofit Moms Demand Action. Coming up, a federal agency serving the Mississippi Delta is making a commitment to address the needs of underserved communities in the region. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner and associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, there's information you can use to help maintain a healthy lifestyle. Just search for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell. A federal agency serving the Mississippi Delta is making a commitment to address the needs of underserved communities in the region. The Biden administration's Justice 40 initiative, administered by the Delta Regional Authority, aims to deliver 40 percent of the overall benefits of environmental infrastructure investments to disadvantaged communities that are marginalized and overburdened. DRA co-chairman Corey Wiggins tells our Michael Guidry part of the program's focus is the intersection of environmental policy and reaching historically underserved communities. Uh, one example that we may look at is is that when you look at, um, you know, the impact or effect on climate change in communities of color, uh, when you look at how and maybe industry and where they may locate uh, in certain communities, depending on the type of industry. So there's, I think, a whole broad stroke of things uh, that you can look at in terms of ultimately its impact. But this is a really focused, good focus on centering uh, communities of color in this conversation. You specifically mentioned um, how climate change uh, impacts community of, communities of color. How, how are we seeing those impacts? How, how are they being manifested? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one standpoint is is that where you're looking, whether let's say you may be looking at at opportunities uh, connected to response to uh, uh, disasters or different disasters that's created um, um, by by our climate, um, those communities um, who we have to ensure are able to um, respond to what those disasters may be. Uh, and being intentional about what that looks like. I mean, I think one of the things is, is oftentimes we talk about uh, communities of colors in the context of resiliency. And part of what, what we found is communities are able to show that resiliency in response to crisis or disasters. But we also got to understand that that resiliency comes out of an absence of opportunity and absence of resources in some sense where or disinvestment in certain places and communities that's been been absent. So really, ultimately, even a part of the work that the administration is doing, part of the work that we're doing at Delta Regional Authority, uh, is taking a long look at that and looking at programs, looking at, 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 at funding sources, looking at how can we be intentional in investments. So yes, we can talk about resiliency, but we don't have to center that conversation of resiliency of, of certain communities in the context and the absence of resources. So that brings me to the Delta Regional Authority. It's a, it's a federal state partnership. It was created by Congress uh, you know, uh, in 2000. What can you tell us about it, where it was, where it is now, uh, and how it is addressing uh, the needs of the, the, the region it serves? Yes, no, thank you. The Delta Regional Authority is this, is this federal state um, collaboration or partnership that created over 20 years ago. Uh, and part of the work uh, of, of Delta Region Authority is looking across our eight-state region, which includes parts of Mississippi, Louisiana, 
um, Tennessee, Arkansas, uh, Kentucky, Illinois, Southern Illinois, Southeast Missouri, uh, and also parts of the Alabama Black Belt. And really looking on the challenges that exist in this part of the state, uh, this part of the region of the country, and how do we take a targeted approach to addressing some of those challenges that exist. One of the ways uh, that DRA, Delta Regional Authority, has approached that is, is how do you support uh, both the people of the region um, and the region itself, particularly around infrastructure. So today, we support through our grant-making activities of public bodies across our region around issues around basic public infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, um, uh, workforce development, workforce development training, and those investments with a targeted outcome towards uh, regional economic development, trying to make opportunity available, more available in our region, uh, improve and increase, improve the lives of folks in our region uh, in those investments and trying to create jobs and retain jobs and really highlight um, we know that our region has has a, a lot of challenges. We all know that. Uh, but we also have a lot of assets. And so one of the ways that we're thinking about that today is, is how do we make investments strategically uh, that are building upon existing assets in our communities while at the same time addressing challenges that that exist. When you list off the, the areas, um, the, 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 the subregions that sort of make up uh, the Delta Regional Authority, the the Lower Mississippi River Delta, you said, the Alabama Black Belt. Those were once places of extreme wealth. Um, granted, that wealth was was concentrated uh, within uh, a very small population of of uh, of ruling whites. So, what is the historical context uh, in, in the work that that the Delta Regional Authority and the administration is trying to do when we 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 look at the areas that you're serving? Uh, and and how historically they've gone from places of great wealth um, to great places that are majority minority, uh, underserved and impoverished. Well, I mean, I think at the core of it is about making opportunity available and making it opportunity available to all people across our region. Um, you mean to your point, we know the history um, uh, of our region, the challenges that exist. Uh, and what we're focused on and what I'm focused on is really to ensure that when we look at our work at Delta Regional Authority, that we are moving towards being part of the solution and not part of the problem. And I think that's what this administration and our commitment to racial equity has been been, been based upon in, in our approach of thinking about how do we be solution-oriented in, in, in addressing the historical inequities that have existed but doing it in a way that allows for opportunity to be available for all our, our, our citizens, for all our people across across our region. And I think to have the, uh, the whole of government thinking about that in that way um, is historic. I think to have a whole of government and people in the administration who are working in partnership with each other and across uh, different sectors of government in a way to ensure that opportunity is available. So the, the needs that may exist in, a, in the places uh, like Cleveland, Mississippi, or Shaw, Mississippi, or or Utica, Mississippi, uh, are being met, um, just like any other needs across any other part uh, of our country. 
I would like to ask you about you know, some of the things that this administration specifically is doing, including um, what is the, the Justice 40 initiative? What is what is the Justice 40 initiative? How will it impact you know, the, the Delta region of Mississippi? Yeah, the, the, again, the, the Justice 40 initiative is, is aligned to the overall administration commitment to equity. Um, uh, the federal government has made it a goal that 40 percent of the overall benefits of certain investments flow to disadvantaged communities that are marginalized, underserved, uh, and overburdened by pollution. And for us at DRA, when we look at the work that we do, uh, whether it's our grant-making activities around basic public infrastructure, uh, small business development, um, our grant-making programs around workforce development, uh, is that we are being intentional in making sure uh, that those investments flow to disadvantaged communities that are marginalized and underserved uh, and overburdened by pollution in our in our region. So I think part of our work um, and our effort to do this work um, is a perfectly aligned to the needs of our region as well. Look, our region is a place that, that is a high need uh, region. We, we're probably high need and and but we're high in also in the people who live across our region who love their communities, particularly the rural communities that are, that are across our region. And so we're really excited to be a partner with, with our, our, our local um, leaders to work with them, to listen to them, to focus in on how can we leverage um, the funds of Delta Regional Authority and how can Delta Regional Authority be a champion for this region and to all our government and federal government partners about the need for investment in our region, but making sure that we're doing it in an, in an equitable way. Corey Wiggins, federal co-chairman of the Delta Regional Authority. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you and appreciate all the work that you're doing too in getting this type of message out. Coming up, what do we know about monkeypox? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell. In a sea of growing cases of monkeypox, Mississippi is an island. It's one of only six states in the country without a reported case of the contagious disease. But what do we know about this virus and the impact it could have on communities? Mississippi State Medical Association President Dr. Jerry Wyland tells our Kobe Vance. Monkeypox is not going to be COVID-19, but what we need to understand is monkeypox is a variant. It's in the same family as smallpox. That doesn't tell Mississippians very much because smallpox was eliminated as a disease in the world in the end the late 1970s because of vaccination. This was really great. But um, and before we talk about monkeypox, we should understand that smallpox, which this is a monkeypox is a variant, um, at its worst strain had a 30% fatality rate. There were if you got smallpox back in before vaccinations, there was a good chance, like one in three chance, that you would succumb to the disease. Now, monkeypox is certainly not that deadly, uh, 1% uh, mortality rate. Uh, but it, and it's different, again, than our respiratory problems with COVID-19 because you really need to have close contact with someone who's infected, touching the lesions, um, 
they can spread it with close contact. It's it's a large droplet thing, so you really have to have like contact with their sneezing or coughing on your talking close to you, touching clothing that has been that someone who has the monkeypox wears. I mean, all of those kind of things. It's very much more of a of a contact kind of thing. Um, it is a viral infection, so again, it, we're somewhat limited as far as you know what what we can do. There are a couple of antiviral medications that have been approved for smallpox that will be used for monkeypox, um, and then there is a vaccine for smallpox that has been approved for use. There's actually two for um, monkeypox. Because Mississippi has such a high pediatric uh, vaccination rate, do you think that's going to help the state curb uh, transmission of monkeypox if a case is identified? No, I'm afraid not. Sorry. Sorry, Kobe. And I want to tell you, I am so proud of Mississippians having, we have the highest childhood vaccination rate. However, there has not been, and um, there's not been a smallpox vaccination given since the late 1970s. Now, here's some good news for us older folks, older Mississippians. Um, you know, of course, COVID was so devastating to those folks 65 and older. But there, if you were vaccinated against smallpox as a child, you will have some protection. We don't know how much, but you will have some protection against monkeypox. So all of those people that have that little scar on their arm um, have some protection. Now, we haven't given out this vaccine in, in over 40 years. So the large majority of Mississippians who are under, who are not senior citizens will have some vulnerability. Um, and then I guess, is, was there anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians about whether it be COVID-19 or monkeypox? What, what should their level of concern be for either of these diseases? And what would be your advice going forward as we continue through the summer? Okay, well, as far as COVID-19 goes, again, as I've, as I've mentioned, it's not gone away. There's going to be a slight increase through the summer. Please get vaccinated, especially if you have any underlying health issues. Get vaccinated to the maximum recommended, which is going to be your initial two vaccines and then two boosters. But please go ahead and get your additional vaccination. Remember that we do have antiviral medications, including oral medicines for COVID-19. If you get sick, don't assume that you, you can just tough it out. Go ahead, get the medication, especially if you have any underlying health issues. And in Mississippi, most of us do. That would include heart disease, asthma, um, being overweight, high blood pressure, um, any of those kind of things. You really should go ahead and take the antiviral medication if you get COVID-19. As far as monkeypox, let's be let's be vigilant. Let's know that it is more of a contact disease. You really should be somewhat wary about anybody that's sick until you know what their they, what their illness is. If they do have lesions, don't touch them and try to stay away from that sort of thing. If if anybody has anything that looks like some sort of pox, including chickenpox, please contact your physician get it checked out. Um, the, the State Department of Health is on the lookout for any problems. And the, the um, way that this is going to be addressed really will be through contact. This is something that will be effectively dealt with by contact tracing. 
Dr. Jerry Weiland is a pediatrician in Vicksburg and is president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Dr. Weiland, thank you for talking with us again today. My pleasure. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.